showtime. can move effortlessly from country to bluegrass, gospel to soul, and he can bring the house down with some good old rock and roll. Please welcome to the Rosie and Bill Show, the man they call the voice of newgrass, John Cowan. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Hello, Rosie. It's good to see you both. Great to see you and meet, meet such a legendary performer. John, I have to ask you, I, and I always like to ask our musical guests this because I'm fascinated when we meet someone of your caliber, caliber talent, excuse me. Um, when did you know, how old were you when you realized you could sing? Well, now I grew up singing in church. My dad was, he sang in choir and he also did barbershop quartet. So I was singing, I can remember singing at three or four, not well. But then um, I started playing in neighborhood bands when I was a freshman in high school. And so when we were rehearsing in somebody's basement, I think we took turns, um, I can remember I, I was singing songs and we used to do this song by Spanky and our gang called Sunday, Sunday Will Never Be the Same. It has this big note at the end of it. And, um, and I could sing that note and every time we do that song, the other guys in the band would kind of look and go like, man, you can, you can sing. And I was like, yeah, I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really, it was just, it wasn't accidental, but you know, you don't really know. I was such a sports fan because I grew up, grew up in Cleveland and then we moved to Pittsburgh before I moved to Kentucky. Kentucky's when I started playing in bands and stuff, but I'd always played sports. Um, but here's what I figured out when I started playing in bands. When I was playing in bands, I was the featured person. And when I played JV football and, and baseball, I sat on the bench the whole time. <laughs> and even though I love sports, it, it didn't take me long to figure out, well, I'm actually naturally pretty good at this. I'm going to stick with this. So, Well, that's, that's a kind of a, a good choice, I think, because you always want to play to your strengths. And it's good that you figured that out at, at such a young age. It was a, a prudent decision. So I want to know too, and well, Bill and I want to know, 
when did you start playing bass and did you find it difficult to kind of sing and play bass at the same time or did those come pretty naturally to you uh i think it i think it only came natural in the sense that i was gifted you know i'm a person that i believe that god gifted gave me this gift of music um and so, but I started on the bass. And so I, that's the first thing I started doing is singing and playing bass and learning how to do that. So it, after a while, it seemed very natural. And I didn't think about it much at the time. You know, I just wanted to be Paul McCartney. So, or, you know, there was a million people I wanted to be that were my heroes at that age. And, and I grew up, you know, the Beatles came out when I was 11 and I started playing music at 14. So, I mean, I literally grew up trying to learn how to be a musician in the golden age of pop music. So there were so many, the music then was just so unbelievable. And it was all, it wasn't so formatted and genre specific, you know, it was AM radio. So I'd hear Stevie Wonder, then I'd hear Charlie Rich, and then I'd hear Jimi Hendrix, and then I'd hear Motown, you know, so it, I, that was a gift for me. You know, John, one of the things that, uh, came to mind is, you know, we were, Rosie and I were talking about, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, maneuvering from genre to genre. And as I said in the intro, just so seamlessly and effortlessly, and I was going to ask you who maybe were some of your influences growing up and you, but I think you just answered the question and it's a pretty wide variety of people. Well, what happened to me was I grew up playing rock and roll music, cover music, because I was just a junior in junior high school and high school. Um, so it was just kind of a happy accident, really. But um, my heroes were all the people I mentioned. And, you know, that was just culturally speaking, that's what I heard every day of my life. I heard AM radio and all those amazing artists. And at the same time, I'm in my bedroom with my little bass and trying to learn how to play the bass part to knock on wood. So, yeah. Were your parents supportive of your musical interests? To a point. And here's what's really interesting as we were starting our first bands and, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior in high school, um, you know, our moms made us costumes. We had, because we wanted to have Nehru shirts like the Beatles and you couldn't buy them anywhere. So somehow our moms all went out and got patterns for Nehru shirts. So the moms made the shirts and my dad, like he built us a little, these two little boxes that had three floodlights in each one, red, green, and blue. <laughs> and so he built us these little lights to take and then he also we would load up our stuff in his station wagon and he would you know we didn't even have our driver's license yet so he's driving us to all these little places to play around Louisville which is where I lived at the time Louisville Kentucky um so yeah they were very supportive except when it came to the, when I got to the end of my senior year it was like okay now you have to go to college and I was like, well, what would I do there? Because <laughs> I was only interested in one thing besides girls, which is music <laughs> and sports. Um, so yeah, it didn't go so well after that. Well, it's, it's interesting because lots of times parents are like, okay, time to stop fooling around. Exactly. And I get that as a parent. I mean, that's just, you're just protective of your children. You don't want them to, you know, I think my dad knew I was a pretty tender-hearted kid and and I think he, he didn't know much about the music business, but he knew what the odds were of people making it. And I think he just felt naturally protective as a parent, so. Makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that that's something I know that uh, I, I kind of remember, John, you know, when I was around that same age, you know, hearing that line about, so when are you going to get the real job, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's so I, I think many of us have had to deal with that in one form or another. And I wanted to just switch gears now to another point in your life. And I mentioned at the outset that you've been called uh, the voice of new grass, and you were also um, a member of New Grass Revival. And I want to see if I can categorize this, you know, the way that it should be. And because basically you introduced, that band introduced music fans to a whole new brand of bluegrass. You say I didn't know what I was doing. And I can't pretend the things just got out of hand. I should have kept my distance for I was too strong But I got caught up in the feeling I was carried along And it's too late, baby, can't stop now well, Can you talk to us about your days with Newgrass Revival And the impact that your band and your music had On both bluegrass and country music over the years? Yeah, I, it, it was actually... You know, I stumbled into that as well. It's like I had said earlier, I'd never played anything but rock and roll music. And I get a phone call from this guy. He's, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and he was down in Western Kentucky. And this guy named Sam Bush calls and says, hey, we got your number from, from a friend and we understand you can play bass and sing. Would you be interested in driving down here and auditioning for us? So I did. And they hired me on the spot um, and then that then the next 16 years of my life happened. We were a curious mix because we played traditional instruments, which is mandolin, fiddle, acoustic guitar, and banjo, and dobro. And I played the electric bass, but we loved bluegrass music, but because of our age, we were all in our early 20s. You know, we, we had grown up with what I, we had talked about earlier, which is the golden age, golden age of pop music. So. We're, our hearts and heads were already filled with this music that was part of our generation. And what we really, we always said what we did in that band is we played contemporary music on traditional instruments, if that makes any sense. So yeah, and it, it, was, it was a real blessing. I love this story uh, real quick because um, I was watching an interview with Sam Bush and he said, when you did come to audition, and I say that in quotes, <laughs> uh, they were really excited about you as a bassist. And then, and then you were like, well, can I sing something for you? And he was like, well, I'm the lead singer, but okay. And then he said, well, I was the lead singer after he heard you sing. <laughs> well, he tells that story, but it actually didn't happen for a while. It took a couple months because, because I was a fish out of water. I'd never played without drums or electric guitars. And all of a sudden I'm in this, you know, bluegrass band, so to speak. And I didn't really know what I was doing. So I didn't even, we didn't even get to the singing for a while. But he always says that, but the truth is, is through our entire career, we, we shared the duties of vocalists. So that's very kind. But that dancing mood is on the water. Hey, wait. 
clearly, John, you, you shared those duties well because it was what 2020 when you and your bandmates from Newgrass Revival were inducted into the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. I mean, what did that recognition mean to you? And, and what was your initial reaction when you first got word? I was completely bowled over. Uh, there was not any part of me that thought that would ever happen. Um, not because we weren't great, which we were, we were amazing actually, but um, there has been a chasm through the history of bluegrass music, or not so much in the beginning, but like Bill Monroe kind of started the music in the early 40s. And, um, and then there were some other bands that did what we did, which was kind of blend rock and jazz elements into bluegrass. But we were the first ones that I think took hold, so to speak, and made a whole career of it. It was trying at times because the, especially in my first 10 or 15 years, 10 to 12 years, because we were the young kids that they perceived as were coming in to ruin their music. So, <laughs> but that was not what we, our intention was just to be ourselves. So, but yes, yeah, so getting into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame was, I was shocked personally. And I was also um, humbled by it. I mean, because now in the museum, you know, Newgrass Revival standing next to Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt and, and the people that made the music originally. So it, it, to say it's an honor is, is the least I could say about it, yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's um, maybe, the, maybe the nicest, greatest thing that's ever happened to me as a musician. Um, yeah, no doubt. Well, now getting back to your rock and roll roots, you've traveled the country laying down the low notes and singing the high notes with the Doobie Brothers. What has that experience been like? I've had a lot of experiences like this in my life where, you know, as a young musician, I would buy people's records and I'd love their music. And, and then I wind up five or six or 10 years later on stage with them and it's like, I just, you know, you don't think about those things happening. You just don't. And that's happened to me time and time again. I mean, because I've done a lot of work in the last 30 years as a singer on other people's records. So whether it was Garth Brooks or Reba McIntyre or all these people whose records I've seen, Roseanne Cash, I could go on and on, Delbert McClinton, Rodney Crowell. Um, and so many of these people were people that I, and Lou Harris, people that I was a fan of, like an ardent fan. And, you know, a little bit of time passes and then I'm standing in the same room with them. I was in a movie with Dolly Parton once. What movie? Uh, it's called Tennessee. I think it's a Lifetime movie. I think it's called Tennessee Valley Songbird. But the funny thing about it is Dolly is such an icon, right? I remember the day this happened. It's probably 18 years ago. So we're in this little house and we're shooting a scene and she's literally this close to me and I'm looking down at her and we have some dialogue and in the middle of this happening, I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm looking at the top of Dolly Parton's head and I'm in a movie with her right now. It's like a dream that you can't, like what? Anyways, so I've had a lot of those moments in my life and it's unbelievable. Now, is, is there anyone who you've listened to or thought about performing with that you haven't yet, but you'd like to? 
I get asked that question a lot. So many of the people that I admire in that way have passed away. You know, there's still some out there, but I don't, I don't know what the likelihood of that would be. You know, people like Stevie Wonder, um, oh gosh, I don't know, Dinah Krall. I mean, there's, there's so many people I admire and, and listened faithfully as a fan to their music. So it's always a challenge when I meet these people not to just like, oh man, you don't understand, you mean so much to me. <laughs> it's like I go into my little kid, you know, looking up at Jim Brown or something, you know. It's interesting, John, because your sensibilities musically are so diverse. I mean, you you named Stevie Wonder and Diane Krall, Diana Krall in the same sentence, and they're very different genre-wise. Oh, sure. I think just I think that has everything to do with how I was raised and the culture I was raised in. And I'll keep going back to this, but you know, from 1964 to the present, you know, music, the popular music has just changed so much, and there was so many innovators and it was so wide open in the 60s because the record companies all of a sudden figured out we can make money off these kids so they just let the kids in the recording studio do what they wanted they didn't really care so you got all these amazing genius musicians like Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and just going in the recording studios and just doing whatever they want and they didn't feel constricted by um is this good or is this bad or is this going to be a hit or not? So it was a magical time. Well, given, given all that variety, John, if, if, um, and, and all the different people you've mentioned that you've played with, if you were playing a show on your own, so, cause you, you do perform on your own. I do. What, what can people expect to see or hear when they come to see you play? Well, you know, I'm known as a singer who also happens to play the bass. And it's kind of a club, you know, there's not a whole lot of people in it uh, because it's really difficult to play a rhythm instrument. It's like singing drummers like Don Henley or Ringo or something. It's, it's, it's kind of a rare package of a person. So, um, so, but once again, singing has always been the thing for me. So I just, whether I write songs or interpret other songwriters songs, you know, I'm going to sing really great songs. Um, and I'm going to sing really well. And I'll, whoever happens to play with me because of, I was in Newgrass Revival for so long and also the Doobie Brothers, whatever. Um, I've been able to attract really young, masterful musicians to play with me. So, and because I'm not chasing hits, um, once again, I just, I get to do something aesthetically that's pretty deep for me. And if I think a song is a great song, I'll, I'll reinterpret it. Uh, I'll record it or I'll sing it live and there's no I really don't have any boundaries about that so when you come to see me I think you know by this time most people that come already know who I am they know what to expect there's not really any surprises one of the things that stands out to me about your voice John is the clarity of it it's so pure. And your, your buddy Sam had said that, uh, you know, in that one interview. And did you ever have any formal training? Oh, yeah, a lot. I still take it. Started when I was in college, the one year I went to college. <laughs> I always tell people that my one year in college, I confused GPA with THC. <laughs> Anyways, the only class I didn't funk was flunk was my choir class. So, and we had a great teacher and he recognized that I was gifted, I think. And he really, he, he taught me how to sing correctly, mm. uh, how to use my body. 
and my voice in the most proper way that would that would cause it that would cause me to be able to sing for most of my life without really having any issues. And then I've since, I mean, I've, I took a lot of voice in the eighties. It's like, I do it. I did it last year. It's like, I don't go very long without checking back in with the voice coach it's because that's, that's what I do. And I have, it's like keeping your oil changed in your car, you know? John, I think that's a great point because your voice, if anything, has gotten better over the years, whereas there are so many performers who they get to a certain point in their life and they have to bring everything down. And, mm -hmm. and at some point, some of the songs almost become unrecognizable because yeah. they can't hit what they used to hit. It's a combination of gravity and you know age, whatever. Um, yeah. And I think people that I mean, if you look at Tony Bennett, you know, I think he finally just quit singing because he has Alzheimer's. But I mean, Tony Bennett was singing into his 90s and singing amazing. So yeah, I think it just and I guarantee you that Tony took voice probably a lot in his lifetime. So that's a helpful tool. Yeah, right. Well, now you're working on a new album. Talk to us about that. So I have a dear friend and I'm actually in her music room right now because <laughs> we were rehearsing all day. Her name is Andrea Zahn and she is a amazing fiddler and a, even more amazing vocalist. She has been living in Nashville. I moved here in 80. I think she moved here in 90. There's about 10 years, 11 years age difference. Um, she has spent the last 18 years playing James Taylor's band and she sings background and plays fiddle. And we've all we've both been making records over the years. And the last couple of records we both made, we both called the other person to come sing on my record. And we found out during the pandemic, we just started kind of like getting together and playing music together with some other guys. And it's just such a joy for me to sing with her because she has the most beautiful voice. Um, so to hear our voices together, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. So we decided to make a record. And so we're getting ready to make one. And um, we'll be tracking April 5th through the 11th, I think. And then it'll probably come out by the summer, I hope. That's definitely something to look forward to. And will it be a variety of, of different genres and different uh, styles and types of music? Yes. Yeah, because that's kind of how I roll. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Man, there won't be any metal on it. <laughs> there won't be any hip hop on it. Uh, okay. But there'll be some um, great songs and great musicians, and it's kind of what I always do. But now I'll be now I'll be sharing um, all the work with Andrea. So, John, on a personal note, I mean, you've had obviously so much success in your career. How has that impacted you? personally i mean obviously people can look at you and they're like oh this this guy has the midas touch you know he's he's got a golden spoon everything is is wonderful from the outside looking in mm -hmm. but do you feel that that you have you know had to give up a lot to have the career that you've had yeah absolutely i mean it's it, you're not going to meet very many musicians that have spent their entire lives on the road that have one wife and one set of children it's just when you don't when you never see your your spouse it's just really difficult 
Um, and then, you know, the music business itself, there's all sorts of potholes and distractions. And um, I've been in recovery now since 1987 from drugs and alcohol. So I had my own battle with those demons. Mm. Uh, I got sober when I was 37 and I'm about to be 68, so. Wow, congratulations. Thank That's you. That's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, thank you very much. That, that is phenomenal, John. And you know, one, one other thing that uh, I think goes without saying is that you, you've got so many incredible things going on. And we, we've talked about a lot of this and, and we just touched on, on your new album that's coming out. And I know you, you play on your own. You, you, you uh, go out with, with Darren and Brooke Aldridge. You, there's all so many, the doobies. Do you ever have any spare time? And if you do, what might you do with it? Well, it's funny that you should mention that because I keep telling my friends I'm a um, stay-at-home dad <laughs> because I've been staying at home for 13 months. We did our last show on in the Doobie Brothers was early February, and I mean I've done some Facebook shows with Andrea, but as far as playing somewhere in front of people, it hasn't happened. So, but in the normal course of my life, if this was a regular year. Um, we do about 80 shows. We're on the road about 160 days, 150, 60 days a year. And so when I'm home, I'm just home and I'm just, um, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, interested in lots of different things. I'm a pretty voracious reader. I'm a swimmer. I've been swimming for years and years and years, which is great for my voice. So I'm pretty much average Joe when I'm not working. What do you think it's going to be like to go? Because things will eventually open up and, and kind of maybe reach a, a, a new set of what's normal. But what do you think that's going to be like to go back on the road for, for 80 shows? Do you think you're like, oh, I kind of like staying at home now? <laughs> well, that's, that's really interesting that you would say that, because Rosie, because that is the truth. I mean, I've started thinking to myself, you know, I understand why people retire. Not so much. I mean, the worst part of my job is not the playing. That's only 90 minutes a night. It's, you know, the other 22 and three quarters hours. It's, it's because we're constantly moving. I'm in a different bed every night. Um, it's just difficult. And what gets difficult as you get older is recuperating from that. Used to be when I'd change time zones, no big deal. We went and did a whole tour of the Pacific Rim about three years ago, um, Australia, New Zealand, Japan. And it took me about three weeks to get over it when I got home. I mean, I'd stay up all night, then I'd fall asleep in the middle of the day. Um, but I mean, you know, every job that every one of us has, has parts of it that, um, that you just have to deal with. I mean, so for me that it just, I'm finding it harder as I get older to get on the bus and to ride 12, 14 hours. It's just, uh, it's a little old at this point. Is there anything, John, at this point in your career that, you know, that I, I asked you before about anyone that uh, you had thought about that you haven't played with, but just mm -hmm. not just so much on an individual level, but maybe a venue or a project, or is there anything else like say on a musical bucket list that when things open back up, you'd like to be able to check off that list? It's not so much, um, the list for me is not so much um, 
achievements is, and I'll give you a good example of this. Have either one of you seen this movie with Anthony Hopkins called The Father? Not yet, no. Go see it. I don't, okay. know, I don't know how old Anthony Hopkins is. He 84? I mean, this is a guy who we've seen in a million movies take our breath away. And I think he might have just done the best piece of work in his life as an actor. And he's well over 80. So for me, it's like, I just want to keep, I want to at least maintain the level that I'm at uh, with my art. And I'd certainly like to get better at it. That, that's my goal. It's not so much about accolades or money and stuff like that. It's just, I'd like to just keep growing. You know, I, I want to keep growing. My mom lived to be 104 and a half years old. Oh my gosh. And she was a doer. I mean, what I mean, she was, when I say she was a doer, she was a registered nurse her whole life. She worked for 30 years in a nursing home. Then she volunteered at this nursing home for 20 years. And then she ended up living there. And she actually um, passed away there. But I mean, even the last 10 years of her life, from 95 to 104 years and a half years old, she worked as a volunteer there. She taught, you know, geriatric aerobic classes and she was in charge of the rose bushes outdoors. So my mom was a doer and she couldn't sit still. It's funny, I'd call her on the phone and I'd say, because I, she only lived three hours from me. I said, what are you doing this weekend? And she'd go through this whole checklist like, oh, maybe I can work you in. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that I'm blessed with that part of her personality. I think I might be. I love that. I think that is so true. That's the kind of thing that keeps people young and vibrant. Yep. Because you are, you know, you, you're challenging yourself. When we get to the point where we're like, oh, I'm too old and, and it, things start to stagnate. And when things stagnate, well, that's when they decay. And that's the other thing about what she did is her whole thing was to be of service to other people. Like that was her deal. Not only did she want to keep busy, but she volunteered because she got a sense of, uh, it was like reinforced her goodness somehow. And so, I mean, I do that in recovery. This is mm. the way I stay sober is I give away what I was given freely. And that's just my life now. Besides music, recovery really is my life. And the way I do that is I'm always working with other people, trying to help them. So that's, that's the part of my mom, I think, that is de most definitely in my heart. Well, and I, and I also respect the fact, John, that you just said a few minutes ago, too, that even at this point in your career and after all you've achieved, you're still striving to always get better. And yeah. I think that's another thing that will keep you going for as long as you want to keep going. I don't know if I want to go to 104. <laughs> I don't know. I won't know anybody. <laughs> right? <laughs> Where's everybody at? <laughs> well, you can bring your music to a few more generations during that time. <laughs> when, I was, when I was a younger man. <laughs> you might not know anyone, but they'll know you. Uh, I, I, well, maybe. We'll see. Well, John, gosh, this has been such an, uh, a pleasure getting to know you and thank you for all of your music and sharing your talent with with the public through the years and we would love it if you would close out the show for us with a song i would be happy to and thank okay. you so much for your time it was really a pleasure honest and thank you for coming on the show and folks john cowan god bless
Precious diamonds. 